0: If you would open your preferred form of media to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. I'm going to be reading uh, 1 Corinthians 18 to 21 and 1 Corinthians 2, 12 to 14. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 21. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believed. And 1 Corinthians two twelve to 14. What we have received is not from the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak So I just want to make some prefatory remarks before I get into the sermon. Um, I just want to mention Cornelius Van Til, as you guys know, I love theology and philosophy, but uh, the esteemed Presbyterian and Reformed theologian, philosopher and apologist who taught for 43 years at Westminster Seminary opened every one of his classes by drawing a large circle on the uh, blackboard, with creator written in it, and below it, a smaller circle underneath with creature written in it. And there was an arrow pointing from the creator-God circle to the creature-mankind circle. And what Van Til wanted to underscore is that all true knowledge comes from God. And that God as creator is the source and sustainer, the beginning and the end of all human thinking and quest for knowledge. That although God is far above us and transcendent, he says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Nonetheless, he is also close to us in imminent, Emmanuel meaning God with us. That the believer, illumined by the Holy Spirit, now has the capacity to understand the things of God and the mysteries of his kingdom, whereas the unbeliever does not. So Karl Barth, Swiss theologian of the 20th century and the father of neo-Orthodoxy, remember his famous quote, The Bible is not the word of God, it only contains the word of God. Regarding transcendent, he said that God is wholly other. Regarding immanence, he said that God is wholly revealed. Sound confusing and contradictory? It is. That's what Bart did. Um, and so Bart unleashed the foundation for a multitude of error, heresy, and heterodoxy when he made that statement. If God is wholly other, then we cannot know Him, which is leading to animism, mysticism and only knowing God by what He is not, or negation. This is the view of Eastern Orthodoxy in many pseudo-Christian cults. If He is wholly revealed, then God is a benevolent and doting father who wants us to be trouble-free, happy, rich and healthy. This is the view of many Charismatics, Pentecostals, and fully the view of the name-it-and-claim-it prosperity gospel. A wholly revealed God gives us a Jesus who is not God, but a wise and learned sage who shows us how to live a good life and to love your neighbor, and by changing the world through social justice, government programs, education, and the big word now, equity. This is the view of liberal Protestantism and much of Roman Catholicism also. And it is now prevalent in broad evangelicalism. By the word, the word evangelical doesn't mean what it used to mean. When I came into the faith in the mid-'80s, evangelical had the idea of a high view of Scripture You are highly evangelistic, orthodox in doctrine, and church-centered. Now, a broad spectrum in the term broad evangelical could be called evangelical. And I just wanted to mention that within, within the world right now, when people talk that they have faith and that they know Christ, it's what Francis Schaeffer called connotative language. In other words, you, when you hear people talk like that, and when, I'm not judging any hearts, but basically they're using words, but they're not using the words in the meaning that, that they normally used in or correctly. So I was watching uh, the other night Fox News, and Tammy Bruce and Kathy Lee Griffin were talking on an interview. And Kathy Lee, of course, has been very vocal about her faith, Um, and she talked about Jesus and having faith. And Tammy Bruce said to her, I believe in Jesus, and I love God, and I have faith. Well, Tammy Bruce is a bright lady, but Tammy Bruce is a practicing lesbian. But she can say those things connotatively and get by with it, of course, on TV. Um, And that's what you do have... Uh, in much of postmodern culture right now, so uh, people talk about having faith, and yet it doesn't mean it, uh, what it's meant in the correct phrase of the word. And only the Reformed tradition has a proper balance between transcendence and eminence. I like to use the maxim of Saint Anselm: "I believe," which also conveys the idea that I obey in order that I might understand. All true knowledge can only be known through a saving knowledge of Christ, not a mere intellectual assent of the emotion, mind, and will. In other words, it's as much as we obey Christ that our knowledge is correct and that we grow in knowledge. Only obedience brings true knowledge. Although the unbeliever is able to think think true thoughts and do many things that are useful to mankind, admirable, and at times even sacrificial, none of these acts by the unbeliever are truly good because he does not do them unto God and for his glory. So in the passage I read, it said, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. All secular philosophy as conceived without the illumination of the Holy Spirit although able to present isolated and sometimes brilliant ideas and maxims built on incredibly complex systems, ultimately fails completely. The fundamental problems of the philosophers that try to solve the one and the many, the ultimate and the proximate, the good and the evil, somethingness and nothingness, according to Van Til, can only be reconciled in the trinity of the Godhead. Only one God in three persons provides the basis for true knowledge. John Frame quotes, In Van Til's Theology, the sovereignty of God becomes the basis for all thought and knowledge, as well as a religious principle. The Trinity becomes the answer to the philosophical question of the one and the many, good and evil, and something and nothingness. And if you would turn to 1 John 2.20, but you have an anointing from the Holy One and you know all things. What an amazing statement, you know all things. By the way, that's an ellipsis uh, in grammar where you intentionally leave out words because they're assumed from the context. It says we know all th- things. This does not mean that when a person becomes a Christian, they automatically become brady acts or Renaissance savants. But it does mean that knowing God as the source of all knowledge and knowing their own limitations, weakness, and total dependence on God, they understand all things truly. Not exhaustively. We don't even attain that in heaven. Even in heaven, we will not know anything because we'd be God. But truly. The unbeliever cannot know anything truly in this sense of the word. Therefore, it is only the true Christian that can understand ultimate reality. Even Van Til used to joke that a believer and a non-believer do not even see a cow in the same way. And 2 plus 2 equals 4 is not seen the same way at an ultimate level. According to Van Til, we see the world differently than the unbeliever. Calvin likened the difference between how the Christian and the non-Christian view the world and reality by comparing the unbeliever—and you know Calvin—he can be tough—to an ass at a concert. Both the human imagine being at a Beethoven concert and seeing a donkey beside you. Both the human listener and the unbeliever hear the same thing, but the. Donkey cannot appreciate the beauty, the intricate melody, notes, tones, and majesty of the music. Likewise, nor can the unbeliever understand, appreciate, enjoy the things of the Spirit and of God. Now, by the way, I'm not trying to denigrate unbelievers. Um, I love them. Uh, Jesus was a friend of sinners. Um, When I came home with the faith, and a lot of friends said, that I don't believe that. As soon as I did something unethical or wrong, they'd point it out and tell me that's not how a Christian lives. So, unbelievers, um, I want to write a book in praise of unbelievers. And there's only one group in the Bible that had their theology absolutely correct. It wasn't the Sanhedrin, it wasn't the Pharisees, it wasn't the lawyers. Who was it? The demons, the demons had perfect theology. They knew God was, the, was, Jesus was the creator, but they did not bow down to him. William Gurnall, in his wonderful devotion, the Christian in complete armor, said this during my quiet time, March 3rd. The thoughts of the corrupt mind are incapable of perceiving the things of God. All its desires, delights, cares, and fears are wrapped up in the present world and are therefore fleshy. Just as the sun hides the heavens above it while revealing the things beneath, so carnal reason leaves the creature in the dark concerning spiritual truths while enlightening his carnal knowledge most excellently. Every creature has its proper diet. The lion does not eat grass nor the horse flesh. Just so, what is food to the carnal heart is poison to the gracious, and what is tasty to the gracious is odious to the carnal. And if you turn to Proverbs 12, I think I have here 1 to 7, but I don't know if it's all that. But let me read it. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. That's the verse that changed my life in 1984. I was living autonomously without God. And I picked up the Bible after a terrible uh, anxiety attack. And I opened to that proverb and my life has never been the same, that the fear of God is the beginning of all wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. I had to make some changes, and I did. In Colossians chapter 2, it says, "'We are knit together in love "'to reach all the riches of the fullness "'and assurance of understanding "'and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, "'in whom are hidden all the treasures "'of wisdom and knowledge.'" Imagining Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Psalm 27, 4, One thing I ask of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. I might Isegeet here a little, but I love that verse. And what I get from it is this. Heaven will not be static or boring in any way. The exact opposite. Eternal worship of God and ever-increasing adoration of his beauty. There's going to be an expanding aesthetic in heaven as we look at the beauty of Christ and the Lord and an ever-expanding knowledge of him and his ways. I challenge everybody We've got to continue to grow in the Lord. We can't just stay babes. We get ready for heaven by continuing to learn and grow. You'll be getting ready for heaven by doing that. Are you growing in wisdom and knowledge of Christ? I I, I like to make the joke that I became reformed by reading footnotes. I would read a book I started out a dispensationalist. I'd read a book, see a footnote, and I'd go get that book. And I'd say, that guy's Presbyterian? I thought all Presbyterians were unbelievers. But I I kept moving forward and forward, and finally I came into the doctrines of grace. And just this, the cross of Christ is the central meaning of all history, growing knowledge, and learning. So I wanted to start off with these remarks about knowledge. Because how can we know anything? And as we look at the spheres of government that I'm going to talk about self government, um, the church, the home, the workplace, these various spheres of government, and we see what's happened to them, we got to realize without God illuminating spirit, What can happen is what we're seeing in the world. So now I'll say good morning. Good morning. I want to thank Pastor Dan and Pastor Bill for allowing me to preach. Um, It's quite an honor. Uh, I'm humbled. Um, And if I can convey any of Pastor Dan's faithful and excellent preaching um, in my sermon, I feel I will have edified you and glorified God. Um, The sermon title is Authority in God's Ordained Spheres of Government. In my Bible reading and study as a Christian, I have always been interested in how in several of Paul's epistles, after expounding either doctrinal issues or addressing a particular problem of both, his application following deals with how we are to apply what we have learned to everyday life. And in particular... Uh, I memorized the book of First Peter with the Navigators. He often addresses five God-ordained spheres of government, which are the, for the general welfare of mankind, as well as for providing the social and cultural context used in bringing people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. These five spheres, uh, which, by the way, are also creation ordinance, are self-government, family government, Ecclesiastical or church government, civil government, and the work sphere. My purpose this morning is to look at these five spheres, particularly in the light of our understanding of the Christian view of knowledge and also with the idea of examining authority. So I'll, I'm going to discuss authority and then get into the five spheres. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day, for this beautiful church. Thank you for the people that started this church. Thank you that you brought it into my life. We ask you, Father, that we will mourn with those who mourn and will be joyful with those who are joyful. We pray for those sick and suffering in the congregation, that you would bring them back whole. And, Father, that we would all Rejoice in knowing Christ with the knowledge that you've given us and that we would be redeeming elements in each of these five spheres of government and authority. Be with me now, Lord. I can only do this through your power. I ask in Christ's name, amen. My sermon text is Romans 13.1, if you'll turn there. Just one verse. Everyone must submit to governing authorities, for all authority comes from God, and those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. This verse underscores the fact that by virtue of who God is, eternal, infinite, omnipotent, omniscient, and as the creator of all things out of nothing, that all authority in heaven and on earth, both seen and unseen, comes from God. I wanna talk about autonomy. Human beings, especially in the modern era with the wonders of science and technology, being isolated and detached from nature regarding have to provide their own food, clothing, shelter, and medical needs for themselves, generally believe they are an authority unto themselves. In other words, they are autonomous or self-governing. Poets, priests, and politicians have been claiming this since time immemorial but never more so than in our fragmented, atomistic, and anti-institutional world. This is particularly pronounced in the rugged individualism ethos woven into the DNA of American culture. So if anybody knows William Ernest Henley, he wrote the famous poem Invictus. Let me just read it to you. Uh, Invictus means unconquerable, and I want you to just... Uh, sense the hubris in this. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeoning of chance, my head is bloody, but not unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horrors of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scrolls. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. By the way, Henley died in 1903 at the age of 52 from falling off a railway carriage. So, so much for unconquerable. Walt Whitman in his poem on the centrality of the individual called Song of Myself opens it. I celebrate myself and sing myself. And what I assume, you shall assume. For every atom belonging to me as good belongs to you. I don't know how many of you saw the Ukrainian girl singing that song. Um, they had a little girl sing. The song is called Let It Go from the movie Frozen. So I looked up the word, uh, the lyrics to the song. She's a beautiful little girl, and they had her on a chair, and uh, it was kind of the pick-me-up type song. Here's the lyrics. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Wow. Sweet little girl, but if she only knew that she was staying in a subway station because of that. It's amazing all these movies. Circle of Life, you know that song. Harry Potter, Born This Way by Lady Gaga. My current candidates for Antichrist right now are Walt Disney Company, J.K. Rowling, and Lady Gaga. So there's more to come. Even we Protestants, I must remind you, that are not free from this idea of autonomy. Max Weber, the famous sociologist, once did a study on why Protestants commit suicide more than Roman Catholics. I know this was over 100 years ago, but his conclusion was that Protestants commit suicide in greater number due to the fact that they emphasis they emphasize an isolated and individualist approach to their faith it's me and jesus in contrast to the more communal church centered and integrated approach of the roman catholic now i say that that was a study over 100 years ago but that's not true today we have true fellowship you don't see that in the roman catholic church another thing another book about autonomy was Robert Bella in his book with other authors called Habits of the Heart. And he, and he coined a phrase called Sheilaism. The term derives from a woman named Sheila Larson who was quoted by Bella in the book Habits of the Heart as following her own little voice in a faith she calls Sheilaism. It came to be a shorthand term for an individual system of religious belief which co-opts strands of multiple religions chosen by the individual usually without much or any theological consideration. And that's what you have today. You have people just putting together their own religion in a large part, detached from any theological doctrine, and she calls it Sheilaism. And I just want to read you this. Toby Sumter, managing editor of the blog cross Politics, and pastor of preaching uh, at a church in Moscow, uh, provides a current summary of the zeitgeist or spirit of the age. Commenting on autom- autonomy and its logical stepchild equity, he writes the following. It's a little long, but hang with me. We live in a world obsessed with power and power disparities, On the one hand, the modern world professes not to trust power. Power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And of course, there is no shortage of examples of power misused and authority abused. But the current modern modern egalitarian gospel is the good news of no more authority, no more disparities. This is the whole point of the socialist, communist, egalitarian impulses of the left. If we can just flatten out all the privilege and power disparities between majorities and minorities, between male and female, rich and poor, black and white, straight and gay, then everybody will stop, will stop fighting, stop taking drugs, and peace and harmony will break out all over. The problem is that in order to get there to that point of absolute equality, you have to be coercive. Sound familiar? You have to force people to give up their power and privilege, which means in order to get to, what, to that supposed non-authoritarian utopia, you have to exercise, um, what shall we call it, authority. Authority and power are inescapable, inescapable. There will always be some with more influence, some with more gifts, some with more strength, more authority, and yes, more power. The question is not whether there will be powers and authorities. The question is whether the power will answer to anyone or whether it will be autonomous, a law left unto itself. The terror of the modern progressive project is the lie that authority is only temporary until everything is completely equalized and then authority will just fade away and power will be voluntarily relinquished. Sound familiar? So just um, to finish this thought, all systems and thought that do not acknowledge that all authority is derived from the creator, God of the Bible, are are contradictory and self-referentially incoherent. The Christian, on the other hand, submits to a world that actually is, the one created and ordered by a creator. And this creation implies authority, and authority implies an author. Not only did he authoritatively speak it into existence, but his powerful word continues to uphold all things that exist. God's power is what gives everything that exists its unique power. Therefore, whether we know it or not, all people don't live autonomously, they live theonomously. That means under the authority or government of God. Of course, it is only the Christian who submits to this divine government and strives to obey God in all areas of life and under the control and filling of the Holy Spirit should display a purity of life markedly different from the unbeliever, for we are, as we know, set free from sin and are slaves to righteousness. However, even the unbeliever is totally under God's authority and government, whether he knows it or not. The unbeliever cannot please God and their motives are never with God in mind nevertheless they do good and right things through common grace but my point is that whether we know it or not believer or unbeliever we're living theonomously we live under the government of God in westminster confession says on God's eternal decree God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his will freely and unchangeably ordain whatever comes to pass. and Abraham Kuyper, the Dutch theologian, philosopher, and statement said, there is not a square inch of the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign, sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. It's all Christ's. I just want to briefly touch upon the issue of authority with regards to the Reformation um, Many believe that the Reformation was about doctrine primarily. Uh, but it's my contention that, as important as doctrine is in church polity and the sacraments, the main reason the Re- Reformation came about had to do with authority. Of course, um, The the reasons given for the Reformation, uh, the confluence of political, economic, and social factors that brought about it, uh, for instance, the political rise of competing states, rulers resenting the pope's power and control, uh, economic rulers jealous of the church's wealth, merchants, merchants resenting paying taxes, people questioning the church and its effect upon their daily lives and, of course, the invention of the printing press spreading these ideas of the church far and wide. This was the view that was taught me in uh, in my public school, a purely pragmatic view. The second reason was, uh, of course, popularized by uh, Johann Tetzel, uh, the inquisitor who sold indulgences uh, so that people could lessen the amount of punishment for their sins. And, of course, doctrine was important in the Reformation. Um, Luther, Calvin, and other reformers risked their lives and labor in, to clearly delineate the biblical doctrine of salvation. This brought about the five solas, sola scriptura, sola fide, sola gratia, sola Christo, and solo de Gloria. But as important as these three re- reasons were for why the Reformation came about, they were not the primary reasons. The primary reason, as I've stated, was the matter of authority. Specifically, would we be under the Pope, the Roman Catholic magisterium, and the church tradition, or would it ultimately our ultimate authority be the Scriptures and the triune creator God? By the way, um, I was in a Reformed church. There's a definition of a classic, a piece of literature that is highly acclaimed, but which nobody reads. And I asked in this Reformed church how many people have read the 95 Theses. And out of 150 people, three hands were up. Uh, I highly recommend that you read them. The Bible is the central religious authority, according to the 95 Theses, and humans may reach salvation only by their faith and not their deeds. And just a comment on tradition and traditionalism. As Christians in the Reformed tradition, we believe in tradition, creeds, the church fathers and reformers, but not traditionalism. Tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living, dead faith of the living. Finally, even though every man does possess a rational mind and by common grace, They can think rightly in a general sense. Their cognitive powers of reasoning have been severely damaged and limited by original sin. The result, called the noetic effect of sin, is an impairment of the intellect that fosters rebellion, doubt, skepticism, and unbelief concerning the things of God. The ravages of sin have rendered people foolish. They are intellectually and morally corrupt, or as we say, totally depraved. Just a final thing about the noetic effect. Noetic means thinking that we're damaged by that original sin. Um, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. And that's the world we're living in now. We're living in a topsy-turvy world. And finally, about general revelation as far as how much knowledge it gives us, it says the heavens declare the glory of God The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. I just want to say this. General revelation gives us a general knowledge. What it does is it both enlightens us that it says that we know God through creation. It says in Romans 1. But but it's not enough knowledge to save us. So R.C. Sproul has a nice quote about both the limits and the responsibility of general revelation. It's not enough knowledge to get us to heaven, but just enough knowledge to send us to hell. And these two limiting factors of the noetic effect of sin in general revelation are best expressed, and Pastor Dan has been preaching about that in Romans 1. By the way, I, I just find it funny the names that Progressives or unbelievers in many ways give themselves, um, says claiming to be wise, they were fools. Why are they called woke? Woke. I I guess that means that we're asleep. Um, Gays call it pride. Pride comes before the fall. Gay pride. Um, Lenny McKelvey, anyone knows who he is? He gave himself the humble name Charlemagne Thagard. Wow. Um, So, finally, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The use of the word fool here in Hebrew refers not only to the individual's mental capacities, but also his lifestyle that's corrupt. But we have the gospel. Thankfully, God stands ready to rescue those whose minds have been ravaged by sin. By crying out to God for salvation by a true sorrow for sin and a true repentance and surrender to Christ as Lord and Savior, lost sinners like us can have the mind of Christ. No longer slaves to sin, believers can live abundantly and victoriously by understanding God's purpose and plan for their lives. Unlike unbelievers who believe they are here by some random accident, followers of Jesus Christ know who they are, why they are here, what they are to do, how to do it, and where they're going. Isn't that beautiful that we have that illumination of the Spirit, that we know why we're here? We're we're to number our days so that we can live wisely and fully for Christ. By the way, just a thought On evangelism. Since we don't like the phrase, come and accept Christ, what do we do as reform people when we when we do evangelism? And I don't think that it's formulaic in any way, but I've thought through it. And instead of asking them to accept Christ, I tell them to cry out for salvation that God might save them. Right? That's the idea of Uh, predestination being put into the equation. God will do his work. By the way, um, it can't be completely open-ended. The Puritans used to have a phrase called closing with Christ. As a salesman, um, I know what he meant. That we do have to, at times when it's right, command them, tell them to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, with this in mind, the discussion of knowledge and authority and the limits and extent of both general revelation and special revelation, let us look at the five God-ordained spheres of government. God delegates self-government, the discipline, self-control, intentionality, and personal responsibility God requires of the individual. God mandates marriage and the family government, the order of authority and the responsibility of parents and children, which God requires in the family. God delegates ecclesiastical or church government, church polity, government, the celebration of the sacraments, exercise of discipline and membership that God requires of pastors, elders, and the body. God delegates civil government, the rights and responsibilities of the civil government and its citizens. And God de- delegates workplace government, the rights and responsibilities of employers and employees. If you would please open to Genesis two fifteen to 17. In Reformed Christian Ethics, the creation ordinances are the commandments given to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 and 2. These mandates predate the Mosaic Law and are often thought to apply to all people rather than just Christians. When the Lord placed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, he established a bond with them and all their descendants. The requirements of this covenant are binding upon everyone who's ever lived since all people are ultimately descended from Adam and Eve. In the first two chapters of the Bible, the five great creation ordinances, some explicit, some implicit, are fully defined. Let's start with self-government. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. The first fear of authority in government in the Christian life is self-government. God immediately placed limits on man's freedom with a warning and a punishment for breaking the law and disobeying and implied a uh, blessing for obeying. The sentence would be death for disobeying and eternal life and unhindered fellowship with God for obeying. And self-government in a fallen and sinful world is Im- impossible apart from the grace of God, both saving faith and and calming grace. In our natural fallen state, man is enslaved to his sin and passions and dead to God in righteousness. So in Genesis 6-5, by the third chapter of the Bible, man has fallen from the state of grace and is totally depraved. It says, The Lord God saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart were only evil all the time. That verse has never been revoked, by the way. Um, When we came into the world with the image of God, after the fall, the imago Dei, or image of God, was severely shattered but not annihilated. After the fall, we retained the image of God structurally but not functionally. We retained it formally but not substantially. All people are commanded to live quorum live, Deo in the presence of God. So the first and most fundamental reformation that must occur before an individual can live quorum Deo and govern himself and be truly free is through a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Self-government extends to all humanity, and a society can only be free when Christians act as preserving agents. You're the salt of the earth and unbelievers practice self-government through the common grace of God. I know this is a Don Barton-type church, but I will quote James Madison. We have staked the future of all our political institutions upon the capacity of mankind for self-government, upon the capacity of each and all of us to govern ourselves, to control ourselves, to sustain ourselves according to the Ten Commandments of God. Try nation building in a nation that doesn't honor the Ten Commandments. You can't do it. I just want to mention something about self-government um, sociologically. Martin Luther King preached social justice. He didn't have the most ethical life. If he had preached self-control, marriage fidelity, it might have been different. So I want you to remember these numbers In 1960, 25% of African Americans, 13% of Hispanics, and 8% of whites lived in households led by single mothers. In 1922, it's 75% of black households, 52% of Hispanics, and 28% of whites that live in single households. And when you think of the U.S. budget as 50% for entitlements, you see how costly the lack of self-government is. Family government. The second God-ordained sphere of government is the family, which includes marriage and the procreation mandate. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over, over every living thing that moves on the earth. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So the family is an ordained sphere of authority in which the husband is the head of the household, and children are under the authority Of the parents. If you just turn to 1 Peter 3, verses 3, 1 Peter 3, 1 and 7. Likewise, husbands be subject to your own wives, be subject to your own husbands, and likewise, husbands live with their wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman. By the way, the family has been called by some the ministry of health welfare, and education. This is established when Paul says that a husband must love his wife as Christ loves the church and to nourish and cherish her as he does his own body. This care and provision even applies to the extended family. 1 Timothy 5, eight. but if anyone does not provide for his own family, I'm sorry, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially his immediate family, He has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Education, the Bible explicitly charges parents with the duty of providing a thoroughly biblical education for their children. Deuteronomy 6-7, you shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. And, of course, it talks about fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. And children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. God has granted particular authority to the family to feed, nourish, and provide for health, welfare, and education. And I know there's a lot of wonderful families in this church that um, did obey the biblical mandate. Uh, and it can be seen in the beautiful children that you have. Number three, ecclesiastical or church government. The third God-ordained sphere of government is the church. It is the responsibility of true Christian, of a true Christian church, to nurture and govern its members through the Word, the sacraments, and church discipline. This authority, derived from God and with Christ as the head of the church, is bestowed upon called, tested, and approved pastors, elders, and deacons. I have something here Um, I'm just going to go through on the authority or the origin of the church. Some say it was Pentecost. That's what a common belief is. Some say it's the Old Testament uh, where the woman, uh, the church is the offspring of the woman described in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And still others see it in other New Testament passages in acts. But I just want to make a point. I actually believe the church started in the intra-Trinitarian Council of God before eternity. That that fellowship that they had, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is a picture of the church. We're very individualistic in the United States, so it's me and Jesus, and I love Jesus. Church is downplayed. Church membership is downplayed. But when you give it to the eternal God, the Trinity, as the beginning of the church, it does some things. Let me read. Here the church develops organically throughout the Old Testament in the unfolding of God's covenant with his people. As Abraham is called out of Ur of the Chaldeans, and the nation Israel is established. When you just have it at Pentecost, it's more man-centered. But when you have it at the Trinity, it's much more rooted in God. Kuiper again, Old Testament saints were saved by the Christ of prophecy and New Testament saints by the Christ of history. Just as Christ is the one mediator between God and humanity, So there is one covenant of grace, one plan of salvation, and one people of God. I won't go into the dispensationalist views. We're all pretty familiar with that. Um, So I just wanted to mention um, these different views of where the, the church actually originated. The Bride of Christ. As the Son accomplishes what he set out to do at the cross and resurrection... The Father rewards him by appointing him heir of all things and gives him a bride, the church, a people of his own inheritance. Imagine that the church is given to Christ as a bride. The Father sends the Spirit to testify to Christ and apply Christ's resem- redemption to the hearts of Christ's people, making them joint heirs with Christ. It is proper, therefore, to acknowledge that the church originated an eternity past and that there are consequences to this eternal and covenantal origin the covenant of grace does not leap from individual to individual but perpetuates itself covenantally from generation to generation that's one thing i love about the reformed faith that it has a history it's historical and it's communal and it's generational instead of just me and jesus Jesus gave the keys of the kingdom to the apostles who were the foundation stones of the church. These keys are entrusted to the church for the purpose of opening and closing the kingdom of God through the proclamation of the gospel. And the sacraments are the signs and seals of the kingdom, and those who profess faith and have been baptized and who per- persist in unrepentant sin are to be put out of the church and excommunicated after due process." And finally, this authority, this church authority, I believe, comes from the Sabbath. Then God rested on the seventh day and sanctified it and made it holy. He sets it aside one day a week and calls it holy. This is a call to humankind to cease from ordinary labor and devote one day completely to the worship of God. By the way, I know a lot of people that are in the seeker movement, alternative ways of doing church, they have church on Wednesday night, and that's not biblical. Civil government, as we round this out. If you go to Genesis three twenty four, Then the Lord said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim with a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Before there was sin, you didn't need any swords, did you? After sin, you need the sword. For there is one authority in God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring punishment to the wrongdoer. In First Peter, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. So God gives limited power and authority to civil magistrates, from local city officials up to the Supreme Court justices presidents, and congressmen. The authority is primarily the ministry of the sword, executing justice, punishing evil, and protecting the innocent. This includes declaring and conducting just wars. and It also requires that weights and balances are correct. I'm in the air freight world, and uh, how many people lie about the freight that they give you and if they don't reweigh it, a plane has to be balanced. So when you lie about the weight, it can kill people if they don't reweigh it. Um, civil magistrates must make judgments and disputes without partiality. Taxes may be collected in order to fund their limited duties. And finally, labor and workplace government. A lot of people don't include this. But if you look at Colossians, First Peter, Ephesians, they address the workplace. And I don't know about you, but when a guy said to me, you're fired, that was a lot of authority, and I had no income. So Genesis 2.15, and the Lord God took the band and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. 1 Peter 2.18, slaves in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your master, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. In Ephesians 6, 9, Masters do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Mankind has been created to find fulfillment, not in idleness, but in a life of rewarding labor. Work is instituted as a God-ordained sphere of authority before the fall and is part of God's good creation, indicating that labor itself is not part of the curse. You ask people to work now, a lot of the young kids, it's a curse to them to work. We also reflect the image of God in Christ when we engage in honest labor. Jesus said, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man works. He also said, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I, to him, working. By the way, orthodoxy should lead to orthopraxy. Right doctrine should lead to right living. God gives business owners, managers, and executives the power to direct an organization as well as hire, promote, demote, and fire employees on performance. Couple statistics. One-third of the average healthy individual's life is spent at work. The average person will spend a hundred thousand hours at work in a lifetime. I end it. I said I had five spheres of authority, but I'll leave it with this. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Then Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth is been given to me therefore go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit and surely I am with you always to the end of the age as worldly culture grows increasingly secular and materialistic we see logic and reason giving way to political correctness a false notion of equity uncritical thinking and double standards nobody is held accountable anymore and most speech is simply emoting. True wisdom, which only Christ can give, is the only answer in this fallen, sin-cursed world. And it allows us to see people, events, and circumstances through God's eyes. For we ought not to think as the world thinks, for we are not of this world. I pray that we would all resolve to be redeeming agents in these five spheres of government and authority and to tell people about Christ when we are in them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word of God that it shows us how to live in every sphere of life. We thank you, Father, that you've given us an ordered universe and you've given us the ability to order culture, to order societies accordingly. Father, we see what mankind without you has done to these five spheres of authority in government, we see it now on TV, and we see we've seen it in history. As we, as years by year, it seems that these spheres are hated, and people do not want to bow to authority. But Father, ultimately, it's because that their insurrection is against you, and they don't want to bow their knee to you. I pray, Father, that we would love the unbeliever, that we would not just be happy, middle-class people, Lord, that just go about our way, but we would number our days. We would love the unbeliever. We would preach the gospel to them and again be redeeming agents in these five spheres. We pray and thank you in Christ's name, amen.